0: International Horse College's motto is People, Safety and Horse Welfare, and you'll find this message throughout our chats. Registered Training Organisation number 31352. Today we've got another one of our regular guests. We've got Johnna McLean, and Jona's coming on for the 13th time talking about 10 questions to ask about training direction. Now, last time with Jonna, we talked about potential purchase after we've already, we've sort of got our foal. We talked about handling our foal for the first time, bringing it right through, right up to riding it, training it, taking it out and asking about a potential horse purchase. But there's another side of the coin too, as a professional trainer or, you know, there's lots of reasons why you may get a horse that we don't know anything about their background. and. This is sort of a little bit about training direction that we're going to talk to about. So how are you today, Jonna?
1: I'm really good, Gwyneth. How are you going?
0: Good. Jonna. this is a little bit of a difference. You know, previously we've sort of known all about the horse. You know, we've had the horse and we've known all its background right from when it's first born and probably when the mare was sort of first served Yeah. all the way through. And now we've got an unknown horse. So how do we know what the potential future possibilities are of the horse, you know. So, John, talk to us about the horse when it first arrives and if we go through this um, evaluation of a new horse that we haven't met before, we don't know about it, when it first arrives, what sort of questions can we ask what sort of things are we looking at when the horse first arrives and it's just coming off the truck or the float or, or whatever?
1: We'll be talking to the um, truck driver or the um, horse float driver about how well the horse travelled and how well it loaded. Yep. How did it go um, during travel? Um, were there any issues? The other thing that I'd be looking for is really having a look and see where the horse was. You know how long it's been standing there. How many manures did the horse do? And what sort of uh, context were the, were the manures in? Was it runny or was it were they all really well-formed and it seemed like a reasonable amount of manure for that period of travel or what did it do? So I'm I'm, I'm looking at those sorts of things before I even have clipped up the horse and unloaded it from the truck or the horse float or the owner is or or whoever's transporting the horse to me. And then I'm letting the horse actually tell me the rest of the story. So all of a sudden, the horse has been transported from one galaxy to another. And, uh, you know, in the context of horse travel in a float or in a truck, the horse may be quite comfortable, but when he emerges, all of a sudden the smells are different, the sights are different, um, all the sounds are different, and the horse will react um, according to those different stimuli. So that will tell you a fair bit about how well the horse accommodates to the new context, your context, your environment. So how well does he lead when he unloads? Is he worried? Does he look quiet or does he look... Really, really sharp and a little bit flighty. Um, what is he like when I put him in the stable or in the yard to settle down? Does he eat or does he pace? What does he do? So I'm, I'm really letting the horse tell me the entire story.
0: Okay, okay. Now, once they've had this, you know, once they've sort of been there, you know, and you've let them settle. What sort of things are yeah. we looking at? You know, with that basic familiarisation. You know, you've put them in the yard or the stable or whatever. When we're observing yeah. the horse. What are we looking for? What questions are we asking ourselves about this horse?
1: We're asking ourselves about this horse. How, how quickly does it accommodate to the context of, um, of my environment? So, mm-hmm. for example, all my horses have already called out because they know there's a new new person arrived on the farm and they can all tell. Yep. And um, if, it's a, if it's a girl, there, there's there's probably a fair bit of calling out and running around, etc., etc. It's all exciting. Um but what I really want to find out from the horses just arrived is that when I pop them into the box, and I've actually let the horse settle, and then I handle it again to feed it, change its rugs, or pick its feet out, or whatever I'm doing, or even just go into muck its box out, am I really, am I really um, confident that this horses' reactions in this new environment are a whole lot better than what they were, or? Is the horse exactly the same as it came off the truck? Is it still got a heightened state of anxiety, or is it still really, really quiet? So I'm just letting the horse tell me the entire story, really, by finding out how tractable they are after they've settled. Um, when I say tractable, I'm talking about tractable basically means how easy is it to manage the horse in terms of its operational features, stop, turn, go, yield, etc. in It's new context now that it's settled. Is it any different to when it Mm -hmm, travelled? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and if the horse is there and starts, you know, running around and if it's sort of settled in a smaller area and you've let it go into a bigger area where it can show off the walk trot, canter, how do we pick out – what are we looking for? You know, we talk about a horse's favourite pace – What are we looking for in that favourite pace so that we can see? I mean, we're evaluating the horse. We're sort of seeing what the potential future possibilities are. How can we tell which is its favourite pace?
1: When we talk about the favourite pace of the horse, we have to be careful that we're not evaluating the horse's favourite pace when it has a high state of a or a high state of anxiety because that won't be its true form ultimately when it settles. So when it does settle, what we're looking for is how well does the horse use its paddock? Um, does it is it looking for any other friends? Is it a horse that's been with other horses? You'll know all of that. Hopefully, when you've asked the, the seller these questions, has it been paddocked with company or has it been by itself? But really, when we get the horse go, what does its walk like? What is its canter like? That's what I'm really really keen on, and it really doesn't matter whether it's a dressage horse or it's a racehorse, or whatever it is. It, most of the work that we do with our horses involves more and more cantering. So I want the canter to be comfortable, I want it to be balanced, and I also want it to be expandable and contractable. So I want to be able to shorten it, I want to be able to lengthen it. If I can't do those two things, then I can rebuild that and I can and help the horse develop those skills. But it's a whole lot easier. If the horse has a really, really good walk and a really, really good canter, that's what I'm looking
0: for. Okay, okay. And say if the horses often will go from walk to canter and doesn't show trot, is that a problem? Is it desirable? And also if the horse does, you know, do that cantering that you talked about, you know, the contracting yep. expansion, what sort yep. of sports so or what would you be looking at for a horse that's got that good canter and a tendency to go walk canter?
1: Yeah. If the horse is a little bit rotated behind, in other words, his pelvis is rotated out so he's he's actually standing out behind, he probably won't have a very good canter. But the horses that are really well coupled that have a fairly low set tail that actually go from walk to canter means that really all the thing you've got to do is train the horse to be able to trot. And it's far easier to train a horse to be able to trot well than it is to be able to canter or walk well. When they don't walk well, but they don't generally canter well, mm-hmm. and now from a racing point of view, this isn't that desirable because what I'm talking about it an equestrian feature here. But in a racehorse, depending on whether it's a stayer or a sprinter, you know, if it's a sprinter, I want him low in front, high behind, and heaps of power and short couple. If it's a stayer, I want a really good length of rein. You know, on that classic New Zealand staying thoroughbred type of horse um, that will get over some ground. Um, that's a completely different racehorse. He's a little bit more level in terms of his wither and his his crew there. But from an equestrian point of view, I want to make sure that I can expand it and contract it because if if I'm able to do those things, then I can accommodate dressage, I can accommodate show jumping, and I can also do cross-country as well. So Mm -hmm. that's a really important feature.
0: Okay, good, good. And thinking about it now and thinking about is this – the right horse for this rider, we've also got to consider that that whole weight ratio, haven't we? So can you talk about the weight ratio but also too, you know, and I'm sort of calling on you to be a bit, um, it's not just being ethical but it's also being considerate of the rider to say how are you going to tell the rider that maybe this horse isn't within your um, in your ratios? You know, tell us a bit about the ratios first and then we'll talk about being tactful for riders. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let's start with the rider, and then we'll move to the horse. It's mm. far easier to work out what's required for the horse than then what's required for the rider, because the rider will actually probably resist your comments a little. So we have to be a little bit careful, tactful, but we also need to be fairly firm with what we say. So from my from a riding point of view, let's start with skill sets. Skill sets means that let's look at what horses they've actually been on, what they've competed on and how well they've done that at that level. And if they've had five or more horses at that level in the same breed type, um, maybe off-the-track horses, then you know, generally they'll be fine and they'll select the right horses. But it takes four or five horses to be able to get to the point where you're a pretty good selector of your own horse. Mm-hmm. However, if you're then... As a coach, from my point of view, from a coaching point of view, if the skill set of the horse is far more athletic than the rider, then I just make the call and just say, look, the, rider, the, the horse is more athletic than you are. This is not right for you. And I make that call a lot. Mm-hmm. And people are still persistent and say, can you get me to ride this horse? And I said, well, I can. I, I, I absolutely can. However, there is a couple of things that you really need to be mindful of, and that is that if when things go not well is when I want your buttons to work, so you have to really listen to me. And that's why I train with, I train with headsets. So I'm yes. actually I'm microphoned up to my to my pupils, so I can speak really quietly, deliberately, and they work up to a mile away. And for that reason, that I need them completely 100% focused on me, because if their skill set is nowhere near the realm of the skill set or the athletic capability of the horse, they shouldn't even be getting on it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that's where where it starts and finishes for me. If the horse won't stand in self-carriage at the manning block and be able to do walks, canter in the arena, we don't go out of the arena.
0: Yes. Yep. Yep. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Yep, now we've got the same thing too and, um, you know, people don't understand it but I just... You know it's, I just think the more that we keep pushing it Jonna, and there's reasons why yep. and it's safety and if we can prevent accidents then that's just what we do yeah
1: absolutely yeah, I've, just, I've just come back from New Zealand and they've had a you know like us all, I mean in Australia we've um we've had a we've had a, um, a nasty spate of um racy accidents and and, and these things will keep happening all mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. but at the end of the day we have to try and get some sort of enlightenment from these things, and that is if the benchmarks that we set as coaches and as trainers yes. are X, Y, Z, we've got to stick to our guns here because otherwise with no benchmarks we are just going to allow willy nearly results, and and why would we do our occupation with that?
0: Yep, 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 yeah. No, I think that, that whole safety is just something that we've got to keep talking about, I think. But, um, yeah. Now, what about the weight? You talked about the skill.
1: Yep. level, ability yep, yep. for the horse. That's good, so the next, yeah, the next step is from the horse's point of view, um, is that from the horse perspective, really internationally, we've we've pretty much now that 15% of the horse's weight is what the rider should be. Mm-hmm. And they also have, I believe, regulations in Europe saying that anybody over a certain age can't ride ponies anymore. I'm not that keen on that because there's such a variety in people sizes from what I yes, can see. Is and it? there's
0: quite a few light adults, small light
1: adults. Well, exactly, exactly. And, and look, people even – I've seen the largest riders, riders, my goodness, I can't believe you're an event rider. And You, you see them ride and they ride really fluently and mm. if they ride lightly, and the horses seem really comfortable, then, you know, that's far better than a lightweight rider that actually doesn't know what they're doing. They're really scared and they're giving the horse heaps of conflicting signals. You know, it's it's a hard one because it's not really a clear benchmark. It's all about how well does the horse go for the rider yep. and how comfortable does it feel? So, you know, it's all very well to say, oh, yeah, we've drawn this 15% rule, but really that's an overarching um, indicator. But mm-hmm. it's up to us as coaches and, and as helpers to be able to say, okay, well, how comfortable does the horse understand all the signals you're giving it and does it doesn't know what it's meant to be doing or does it look as if it's um, not coding at all?
0: Yes, yeah, and if we take it as a guideline, not black and white, then um, exactly. we're sort of able exactly. to take all the other considerations in. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's precisely right. So, you know, I've got photos of me and I've had I've had some um, uh, positive fun feedback and I've had some negative feedback. And there's a picture of me riding um, a 10-hand pony that I was breaking. He was a three-year-old pony, actually, um, for my stepson. And um, he ended up um, going to Werribee on that on that little horse. Did and. Doing, doing quite well. And, and the horse, I think when he went to Werribee, the horse was five and, and Lockie was five. And um, I was really fortunate that I was such a lightweight rider because I'm only, I, you know, I'm, I'm 59.5. I've been five my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, that I could actually just ride this horse reasonably effectively enough to be able to pop him on and then be able to make sure that he understood that the signals that he had to do to try and make this horse listen to him were effective, but he actually really understood that he had to say good boy and release the pressure um, and do that. And, and then that, that meant that I was able to translate context. And that's really what it's all about for everybody, is that yep. can you translate context so the horse understands the question.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Okay. So just going back, you know, about this horse that we've got and the training direction, just thinking if you say, right, I'm going to event the horse, yep. but then it doesn't work out very well for cross-country and it may not have a lot of scope cross-country. I suppose you can still jump it and you can still do dressage and, and if yep. if it gets to a certain level and it really shows a lot of scope as a show jumper, you don't have to do the dressage, you don't have to do the cross country, but the fact that you've trained it is going to make it a scopia show jumper, isn't it? So, so I yeah. suppose, is that, right. you know, and, and even, even as a racehorse, you know, if you're sort of taking it out and you're sort of riding it up and down a few hills and through a bit of water and up and down a couple of little banks, it's still going to help it as a racehorse. So just that it's almost like cross training, that variety of training is probably you know, just, just I'm just thinking about the skills required for dressage, show jumping and cross country. You know, how easy can they get transferred across to the other disciplines?
1: Gee, I, I reckon out of all the questions you've asked me, Glenn, that's probably the best question you've ever asked me. <laughs> so, and I'm going to go further than that and say yeah. I don't know whether there's any racehorse trainers listening to me, but I reckon their racehorse would, would actually race a whole lot better if they actually broke their horses in and then did six months of dressage training or cross-country training or mm. dressage training in undulating terrain, but dressage training nonetheless. Mm-hmm. In being able to get the horse to be able to expand its stride, lengthen its stride, shorten its stride, and understand what's required of it, whether it be racing over or eventing, a whole lot better than if we just say, okay, uh, I think you're going to be an event horse. Oops, um, you've had a couple of refusals. Maybe you should be a show jumper. The reason it's had refusals is not because it's not scopy. it's probably had refusals because the question is too big. Okay, yeah. We get that in the venting a lot. So mm. I have to be really careful here in saying just because a horse has refusals doesn't mean it doesn't like cross country. Mm. It just means that you've actually asked the wrong question because cross country is all about context and you ask and I spend a lot of time speaking to course builders about this and I've got quite a few uh, friends of are course builders and 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 fbi course builders at that that they understand that what the horse is looking at and what the background of the fence is looking at will pretty much dictate the effect of the the population of riders coming through on that fence whether it be one star two star three star on a horse or five star in this case <laughs> so you know and then in show jumping for example if the horse and he rubs quite a few fences, and then they say, oh, he's not going to be a show jumper. Well, we don't know that. We don't really know that because did you free jump the horse and did the horse look like it was a pretty good show jumper when you free jumped it? Because if you're a rider, your job is to be able to emulate what he does free jumping, and if you can't do that as a rider and a trainer, you probably won't have a show jumper either.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Okay. I'm just thinking about the horse's natural tendencies. So say if you've got one that, you know, some horses are curious, some want to run away, some might get a bit aggressive. Yep, yep, yep. Turn, snort, whatever. Yeah. How are we going to use these natural tendencies to, like, you know, use them but use them in the positive rather than having a fight with the horse every time they do something that's just not exactly what we asked, you know. Every time they show a bit of personality, you know, we don't yeah, want to yeah. fight them. How can we bring their personality out and, um, and continue to train them?
1: Another good question is that for the horses that are a little bit scared and a bit timid about where they're putting their feet and they're a little bit precious about what's standing in the mud and I don't want to take a step into the water here, I prefer to jump it because my feet are a little bit precious and they're a bit sensitive. And they're inclined to shy and they're a bit reactive, that's my show jumper. Mm-hmm. I want a horse that is actually a little bit too scared to touch the odd things, the yep. things that are a little bit different. That's mm-hmm. my show jumping horse. Okay. And it took me a fair while to work this out, but really, as an event rider, I ended up working out that it wasn't a horse that was brave. I could train it to be brave, but just by making sure that I was really consistent with my training and really solid with the sort of fences that I um, approached him to in training Mm -hmm. and also very careful to do this in competition as well. But what I really wanted was a horse that had three good paces, not only have to be fantastic paces, but three good paces, but was actually really careful even when he was tired. And the horses that shied and the horses were a bit scared and the horses were a bit reactive, were always the horses that actually went clear after they were tired?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: yep, 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 okay. So I was actually after a good-moving 3 post pressage horse that I was actually a little bit a little bit worried about where he's putting his feet. Mm-hmm. And I can train to do the cross-country stuff because that's just training. Yep, yep, okay.
0: And then, you know, I'm just thinking because we've done so much groundwork in the early stages, and I know that you're really keen on stop, go, turn, park, yield. You know, what do we do? You know, we're looking at a horse. Do we just say, oh, no, they should already know that and not do it? Do we revise it? Do we, you know, say, well, maybe it's got to be in contact? Yeah, Can Uh you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: If if I I am experiencing a horse that is a little bit – inclined to be very, very bendy and evasive with his hind quarter and swing his quarters left and swing his quarters right, for example. He's a really, really nice bendy horse, mm-hmm. and probably those horses that are inclined to do that often have a good canter, and it's not a coincidence. Okay. So they're horses where the, the motor is actually trying to pass the driver, if you if you understand what I mean, yep. Um, the hind quarter being the um, hind end of the horse, and, he, and they're trying to pass you. So... Really, the challenge is trying to get everything straight and everything channeled to the point where I can control the back leg and the front legs independently of one another. And I'm a, I'm a great believer in this. Is that unless you can train independent mobility of the front end and the back end, you're probably never really going to have a horse that goes beyond novice mm-hmm. because you won't create bend. You won't be able to go to elementary and to medium uh, and, and sort of elementary Start the bending process for the shoulders, etc., and then medium uh, follows it up with the with the hindquarters and being able to do bend, and then ultimately we're going to do the half pass and changes. So, you know, from that point of view, the mobility of the horse and what it, it can do and how bendy it is or not is actually going to tell me how much homework I've got to do to be able to fulfil my objective, whether it be show jumping. Dressage or eventing. So, from an eventing point of view, pretty much if you know your horse can do a bit of half passing, do flying changes, you, you, you this as much as you really need to do. You don't mm-hmm. need to do more than that. Um, but from a dressage point of view, you know, the dressage really FEI point of view, it actually really doesn't start to happen until you've got bend. Okay. And um, yeah, yeah, so it's. it's Interesting, diverse of features, I find. And that's why I always encourage everybody <laughs> to, to start off your horse as an event horse because then he can do undulating train, he can do dressage, and he can do show jumping, and then work out from there and say, well, you know, maybe I don't like eventing anymore or, or maybe I don't want to jump solid obstacles anymore. I'll just show jumping, or I'll just do dressage, or I'll just do combined trainings, whatever.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. All right, now the riding out. I know that you're sort of keen and I think you said before about just riding out and, you know, you can still do work. You can still say, right, straight line now, we'll do this. Yeah. Yeah, tell us a little bit about riding out and how that's going to, um, you know, we're talking about training direction. so choosing which way your horse is going to go, what sort of things are they going to show us when they ride out? And then if they show us something, you know, some particular tendency, does that mean that they're good at something or potentially good at something, not good at something? What are we looking for there?
1: Riding out is, I believe, getting sure. your horse out. Because um, you can do dressage on the trail. Sure. Anybody who yep. dress dressage in a 20 by 60, um, doesn't understand dresses. So you can actually do dressers whenever and however you want to. You can do it on the beach, you can do it on the trail. So what we really want to be able to do is to be able to expand and contract the paces, be able to um, um, do minuscule changes within the pace so that we can have some sort of um, really adjust finer adjustments, walk trot and canter um, within those paces. And then we can do independent controls of um, shoulders and and hindquarter, et cetera, and we can do all those sorts of things on the trail. The really important question is when we go out on the trail, how well does the horse accommodate the different the footing? So if it's slippery or if it's raining or if it's really sunny or if the kangaroo is jumping out or if there's a wombat jumps across or there's motorbikes in the area, how well does the horse um, accommodate all those things? So that actually tells us how easily startled or how easily um, – Uh, how easily does the horse then go from being very, very operational to, oh, now I'm not sure if I've got much control, um, just through the changes of his environment, whatever they are. So it tells us a whole lot about the horse's mentality because that is what's going to happen in competition. In competition, there's a lot of left-field things happen. There'll be um, slightly out-of-control horses. There'll be um, people that... Um, you have to be held up or you've been told that you actually don't start very well. So, you know, there'll be changes of context all the time, and those riding out things, when you're riding out in the wind, in the rain, sun, uh, with motorbikes or with animals amongst the cows, will tell you how well your horse accommodates change of context. So it's a really, really valuable insight into the horse's capability
0: Now, John, at this stage, we've got a horse, you know, and this is sort of just the last question to finish off, just talking a a bit more about the the context and the care of the horse, you know. I mean, I know that you're really big on the roughage. They've got hay ad lib, you know. Maybe they've got like an oil-based feed or something, you know, Stabled at night, you know, and they're giving you signals like the bed is messy in the morning. Yes. How important is it to have – a friend and thinking about horses in their natural environment in a herd, and how important is that to do with their training? You know, balancing their training.
1: Yeah, we don't even understand the importance of this yet because we're not even very good at it. Mm-hmm. And that, by that, what I mean is that we tend to, as people, have a horse that is on a uh, young foal that is on a, on a mare, and then we wean it, and then from that point on, it's in isolation. Mm. What are we doing? Mm. that that's not how horses are meant to be. Horses are actually meant to be in contact with other horses. Now, if that is not possible, you have to then step into the area of uh, in in that context and become uh, can I say that horse's best friend? you you've got to, get in there and and groom it and and stroke it and make it feel really comfortable with your presence if you're not going to let it be with other horses you know can you imagine if you were a person and you were actually put in isolation um after you went to primary school how how, how do we all think that this would go mm. and so it, it wouldn't go that well so what we need to do is have you know tactile and tactile inputs and and mental inputs and And training, if it's done really well, is a fantastic way of being able to keep the horse stimulated. Um, So it's really important that when we walk into a horse's box, we observe how settled the horse was that night. Are his droppings good and firm? Did he drink enough water? Did he finish his feed? Is he comfortable with the routine? Is he a complete disaster? And I can't even pick it up. I probably need, you know... I need a special machine, the, the, everything's ground into the sawdust, or is it a really easy box to muck out and there's a big flat spot in it because he's laid down and he's had a big sleep. Okay, no cool. So I've got a fairly settled horse here. So there's lots of things that we can tell about a horse's demeanour. There's lots of things that we need to be able to do to make sure that a horse is really comfortable with us, because if they can't have another horse to touch and to groom or to, or just to be near, then, you know, it's just not fair. It's not fair.
0: Yes, and, you know, we keep talking about welfare, and that doesn't necessarily mean that, that the horse is what we want. It's got to be what the horse needs. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly, because this is a this is a primal drive. So, you know, we're talking about something that the horse um, that has been domesticated over however many years of time, but at the end of the day, those drives... Still exists. Mm-hmm. He still needs oh, the same kind to be near him, and if he can't, we need to replace it with something. Yep. Otherwise, it's not fair. Mm-hmm. And then we mm-hmm. and then we go out and we buy, you know, all sorts of products because you've got stomach I mean, Really, <laughs> yes. we're only looking at symptoms of a damn problem here. I mean, this yeah. is not rocket science. So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I think anyone is going to say, well, yep, John is on the side of the horse, that's for sure. So um, all this information you're giving us is just getting people to look at it and you keep referring back to what the horse wants. So, um, yep, I think thanks again, John. It's been great talking to you. And uh, this has given us 10 questions to ask about the training direction, but... You know, I understand that we've sort of talked about you doing one or two case studies on horses that you're working with, and um, I'm just looking forward to talking to you some more, because you keep going, into. you've got so much knowledge, so many different areas you can talk to. I could probably just keep talking and talking and talking, but we do need to finish, and um, I'm looking forward to catching up with you next time.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm sure that we'll be able to uncover some case studies, so thank you very much, Clarence. I appreciate
0: it. Not a problem at all. Talk to you later, Jonna. Bye-bye.